This morning, we're going to continue to look at Psalm 110, verse 1, as we continue to look at some of the implications or some of the truth that is contained in these verses. Now, we're not doing an exhaustive study because, first of all, I wouldn't be able to because I don't know exhaustively what's in it. But at least what we'll do is highlight this morning what I, I feel the Holy Spirit gave me as I looked at the verse and as I began to go through it. You know, and typically, you know, you look at a verse and you think about it and you get a couple of thoughts and you move along. And then the Holy Spirit says, hey, 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 hey. You're going way too fast here. Because what we tend to do, if we're not careful, we look at a word and we see a word and, okay, it's a common word. All right, fine. I see that and I'm moving along. But we have to remember that when the Holy Spirit speaks, and especially when Yahweh is speaking to David's Adonai, remember? The Lord said to my Lord, Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, says, David is the speaker here, to my Lord, Adonai. In other words, this is David's God. So God is speaking to David's God. We have two different people here. And when he says something, Yahweh says something to David's God, every word like any word in the New Testament rather than the Bible is significant, but especially when we're getting the word of the Father to the Son. Extremely significant that we hopefully receive from the Holy Spirit as much as he will give us and as much as we will be able to receive. So remember what it says. Verse 1, Yahweh... Who is that? The Lord. I say Yahweh because Yahweh, the Lord, is a title. It's not a name. And there is a reason for that, but we won't go into it. Yahweh is his name. Remember in Genesis, I'm sorry, in Exodus what? 3, 14. Tell them that Yah hath sent you. What is your name? My name is Yahweh. Tell them that Yah has sent you. And so when Yahweh is speaking, Yahweh says to my Lord, my Adonai, what does he say? Is it in your notes? Okay. What does he say? Sit. What? At my right hand. Sit at my right hand. So that's the command that we want to look at this morning. Now, we look at the word sit. And, you know... It's a common word. It's a common position. But I believe there's revelation here that the Lord wants to show us concerning the one who is commanded to sit. There's much more here than just, hey, have a seat, sit down, enjoy yourself, rest for a little while. So let's look at some of the implications or the truths that are contained in this word sit. And I, I think I have, I have five of them here. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think it's only five. Okay, fine. So I want to talk about this. The implications in the word sit are these. Do you have that list in front of you? Completion, plurality, 
equality, authority, and instruction. And I remember when I'm going through this and I'm looking at the lesson and sitting and thinking and hopefully hearing from the Lord, you know, one or two come to my mind. Ah, good. Now, notice I did not say, and I'm looking at it and I thought about this and it came to my mind. That's correct. But we always want to say the author who put it in your mind, who's putting this information in our minds. And so we look at this and we begin with the word completion. We don't have to begin there, but that's, this is the, the uh, uh, what do we call The one, two, three, four, the, what? Sequence, thank you. Sequence in which was given me. First of all, completion is rest. Sit down. You come in from a hard day's work. If you're a husband and you've been working outside and whatever, you come in. What often might the wife say? Might she say what? Sit down. Sit down. Sit down. Most wives might say that. Why sit? It's indicative of a completed work. And so when Yahweh is telling Adonai, is telling David's Lord to sit, what is he saying here? Sit because your work is completed. Rest because the work is completed. You remember in Genesis, what happened? The Lord did what on the seventh? He rested from all of his work. The work of creation had been completed. And therefore, the sitting posture meant that the activity of the creation of the world ended. But it did not mean that God's work ended. It meant that particular aspect of God's work is over. And so, sitting, the posture of resting. In Hebrews 12, 10, 12, listen to what it says. Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time. Did you see that just then? There are some who teach that there is a continuing sacrifice for sin. But what does Hebrew say? What does the word of God say? Jesus, having offered what? One sacrifice for sin for all time, did what? He sat down at the right hand of God. Now, you do see that the author of Hebrews is quoting from Psalm 110, verse 1, as his scriptural authentication of the work of Jesus having ended. He sat down at the right hand of God. Why? For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. So what is the work, at least in this context, is over? What is the work that is over? What work is over? The payment for sin. The atonement is finished. Remember what John, uh, Jesus says in John nineteen thirty. and I've quoted it so much, you should remember it. Three words. It is finished. Now, what is finished? Well, I think an enormous amount is finished. But the immediate context is what? The atonement, the bloodshedding, the payment for the guilt and penalty of sin for God's people has been completed by the Son of God as the Son of Man. Correct? It's completed. The word finished means the bill has been paid in full. It's a Greek word, tetelestai, which is a commercial term which says the product that you have purchased has been completely paid for. 
You remember years ago, some of us who were older, we used to get receipts, and the uh, uh, person would put a stamp on it in red ink often, but sometimes black ink and others, and it said what? Three words, paid in full. It's paid in full. Legally, there's nothing else to pay. Legally, there's nothing more that's due. Do we see that? Significant for us. If we're in Christ, all of the debt of our sin has been what? I like to say it this way. I feel the Lord gave me this one time. All of the debt of our sin is paid, is forever, finally, rather, finally, forever. Sorry, let me start all over again. Is fully, finally, and forever paid for at the cross. You need to remember those words. Is fully, finally, and forever paid for at the cross. So when we sin, we certainly are convicted of our sin by the Holy Spirit. But because of the work it is finished, there's no longer any what payment or guilt because Jesus has taken our guilt, meaning that we are guilty of sin. And if there's guilt of sin, there must be payment for sin. But we are no longer considered as guilty people because God has declared us, remember, not guilty. That's where the word justification comes from. Well, what am I feeling? Well, you may be feeling shame. You may be feeling conviction. You're feeling the truth from the Holy Spirit that what you did, son or daughter, is contrary to the will of God. It is dishonoring to God. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit to draw us to himself to say, I agree with that. I confess it. Would you give me the ability and the power to repent? Would you change my heart and my mind concerning this activity of sin and begin to transform and, and, and uh, dig into, if you would, to the area of my soil that is producing this and bring forth the flowers of your grace? Correct? So... This is also why Jesus could say in Matthew eleven twenty eight, when he's told to sit at the right hand of God the Father, then what does Matthew eleven twenty eight say? Jesus says, Come unto me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden. Labor and heavy laden about what? About your sin. This doesn't mean you just worked hard all day long and you sweaty. That's not what this is about. You're laboring and are heavy laden and burdened, cast down by your guilt, by your sin. It's dominating you. It's crushing you. It's controlling you. It's destroying you. He says, come unto me, all you who are in that condition, and I will give you rest. Find rest for your souls. So literally, Jesus is the Sabbath fulfilled. And so we are people who have been born again into God's living Sabbath. Adam and Eve were created at the end of the sixth day. You remember that? Six days. And they were created to live into God's rest. They were created to live into the context, into the good, into the blessing of God's eternal rest on the seventh. They sinned, and so they weren't able to continue in that rest. Jesus comes, and he gains excuse me, gains rest for us through this purchase of our, um, through the payment of our sin at the cross. And now we have come into the, the family of God as those who are now living in the eternal rest. What is his name? I am the rest, 
Jesus is God's rest for us. He is resting from his work of dealing with our sin, and now we are able to experience the rest from the control and the domination and the authority of sin in our life. Also, sit means what? It's a plurality. Yahweh says to Adonai. How many persons are involved there? Two. So when we see this, this is a plurality. This is an activity or a conversation in God that indicates to us very clearly, as many other conversations that we, will, we have seen in the Old Testament, that God is not a uni-God. What is it called? Unification. Remember the unity church? What does that mean? That God is a being of one person. No, he isn't. Someone said the other day that there's no distinction between Allah and the God of the Bible. Well, what is the distinction between Allah and the God of the Bible? Allah is a single person. Are we with me today? Whereas the God of the Bible is one in his being, but three in his persons. There are three divine, distinct, equal persons of the Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so in the Old Testament, many times you see this conversation kind of going on. And there's a plurality being uh, uh, witnessed here. One person of the Trinity is saying something to another person. So there's an identification here right away that this is a Trinitarian, at least, uh, you know, two people here. Now, we learn later the Holy Spirit is involved. So this is a plurality. The word sit in this context has to do with a plurality. Someone is telling someone to sit. Two people are involved, if you would, two divine folks. The next understanding or the next aspect of sitting is equality. He says sit at my right hand involves an equality of persons. God is holy. He's unique. There's nothing no one in all creation that can, and under any circumstance and in any way, sit with God in his throne at his right hand and be inferior to God. It doesn't happen. You see, I'll talk about that in a moment, why it doesn't happen. There is an equality here. And so when Yahweh is saying to Adonai, he's speaking to someone who is equal to himself, but he is speaking to someone who is distinct from him as to his role. Does that make sense to you? You see, he's talking to the son and he's telling the son of God, sit. But wait a minute. The son of God has always been at the right hand of the father, hasn't he? He's always been with the Father, equal with the Father. My Father and I are what? One. And the Jews picked up stones to stone him. Why? Because by saying these things, he made himself equal with God. You see, the Jews weren't upset with Jesus because he said, I'm the son of God. Because they knew that all the children of God were sons of God. That was a common term. The son of God. They you know, I'm a son of God. Well, that's fine. All of us are sons of God. You see, Mike, I mean, we're all sons of God. What totally destroyed them was his claims that he is, as the son of God, he is the unique son of God. Why? 
because he is equal with God. You remember some of those conversations? In fact, at the trial, he has committed blasphemy, and our law says that someone who says they are equal with God must be put to death. You remember that. It's the equality with God that created the problem in their theology. And so, Isaiah 42, 8 says this, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not share or give my glory to anyone else. Now, that's a very important verse, <clears throat> because there are those in other religions who say that Jesus is a created being, and as a created being, he cannot share in the glory of God, because only someone equal with God can share the glory of God. And so when God is telling Adonai, if you would, David's Lord, to sit, he is talking to him in his capacity as the son of man who has gone to the cross, who has died, and who has been raised from the dead, who has been exalted, and now who will sit in the throne of God. So there is a divine man in the heavens who is commanded to sit. So, Adonai, I will not share my glory with another. However, God's command signify in this case sit signifies that David's Lord at the right hand is to sits because he is to share the glory of God no one shares the glory of God the glory of God is indigenous to himself so this is why we read of Christ in 513 of Revelation to him who sits on the throne who is that Yahweh and to the lamb Adonai be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever. Especially in Revelation, you see where God, the Father, and the Lamb are both given glory and both worshipped equally. They are both equally worshipped. And so this places uh, the understanding, again, of our un this creates the understanding that this person is equal with God. Why? Because he's commanded to sin. Sitting also is an authority thing. Sit at my right hand. The right hand of God is a position of authority and power. I think we probably have heard that. Exodus fifteen six. Your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. So anyone who is at the right hand of a king shares the authority. Now, we have to be careful. The Son of God has the authority the same as the Father and same as the Holy Spirit. But the way that authority functions in the Godhead is that the roles of this authority are distinct. So that the authority, if you would, comes from the Father. It comes from the Father. It goes to the Son and is applied by the Holy Spirit in our salvation. But all three have the same authority. But the authority functions distinctly in each person of the Godhead. And so Jesus doesn't need to be given, I'm sorry, the Son of God doesn't need to be given authority. Remember in Matthew 28, 8, I'm sorry, 28, 18, all authority in heaven has been given to me. Why? The Son of God already has authority. All authority has been given in heaven and earth to me as I am now the ruling, reigning son of man. As a man, God has given authority 
to the Son of Man. So there is now a man in the heavens sitting in the throne of God with God, ruling and reigning with him forever. Yahweh's purpose in commanding David's Lord to sit was the inauguration of his original intention that the glory will fill the earth. So he gives the command to sit and to share the glory, I'm sorry, share the authority of God with this man in order that this man will send the Holy Spirit to bring in the church into God's company to save God's people so that the whole world will be filled with the glory of God. Remember Habakkuk 2.14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. So what is, what is God's purpose in all of this? It is to get to his ultimate goal, that in his people, God's glory is to be manifested forever. The uh, posture of sitting is a posture for ministry. You know, typically in this age, in this culture at least, when a teacher is ready to teach, what does he typically do? What does he do? Stand up. But in the culture of Jesus' day, and still in cultures today, the posture of sitting, by a teacher at least, is the posture to begin to do what? Instruct. The posture to begin to teach. Do you remember this? So, what does Jesus say in Luke? Luke 14, 31 to 32. Suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. So he's about to go to war. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able to go to war? So the posture here is posture ready for ministry, getting ready to do the ministry. It is a posture that says now you are equipped with authority to do the ministry for which you came to accomplish. You can start to do that through this sitting posture. Jeremiah 36, 15, sit down, please, and read it to us. The prophet is asked to sit down and read the prophecies to these people. Sit down and begin to teach us something. Luke 17, 7, come along now and sit down to eat. You remember when in uh, Matthew 5, all the people have followed Jesus out, what, into the wilderness. You remember that? And so they're all out there. And the milling around or whatever. And what does Jesus say to his disciples? Command them to do what? Sit down. And they sat in companies. Remember that? Sit down. Why? Because Jesus is ready to teach them. He's ready to instruct them. He's ready to feed them with the word of God. So when he is, when the son of, when David's Lord Adonai is given command to sit, this is the father's, if you would, release to him to say, now you are ready because of the completed work, because you are equal with me, because, you know, um, uh, you have submitted to me. Now you're ready to do the ministry. So that's in this word sit. Now, in this word, we read that David's Lord is commanded to sit as to his role of being the priest forever. Now, look at what he says in verse 4. Go back to verse 4. Sorry, go to verse 4 in Psalm 110. Sit at my right hand. Correct? Sit at my right hand. Now, look at verse 4. Verse 4 is describing the completed ministry that David's Lord 
Let me see. I got my train of thought. Verse 4 describes the completed ministry that David's Lord has accomplished. So what does he say? Not only to sit, but in verse 4 he says this. You are a priest. What? Forever according to the... According to who? The order of Melchizedek. Remember that? You are a priest. So why is this son of God commanded to sit? Because the work that he has completed is the work of his priesthood. The Lord says you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, what's so unusual about a priest being given to sit? What's so unusual about that? You remember when the tabernacle was constructed and then the temple years later was constructed? The priest, especially the high priest on the Day of Atonement, but the other priests, the Levitical priests, would minister into the tab- minister the ordinances and the sacrifices of God in the tabernacle or in the temple. They would do it in the mornings and they would do it in the evenings. There were continual sacrifices for sin, offerings for sin. But when the offering was completed, what would the priest do? He came out of the tabernacle. He came out of the temple. Why? Because, you see, there are seven pieces of furniture, you remember, in the tabernacle. You may remember that. Seven pieces of furniture. What was missing, however? There was no chair. There was no chair in the tabernacle. There was no chair in the temple. Why? Why? Because, you see, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to do what? To take away sin. Because there was no chair in the tabernacle or in the temple, this signified what? That the sacrifices never were fulfilled or completed or did fully the work. There was always another day, another sacrifice That had to be made sufficient for that day, sufficient for the sins of that person who brought in the the, uh, the bird or the lamb or whatever it is. The sacrificial system was one that continually had to be happening because the priests themselves were never able to fully fulfill all the requirements of God so that there was no more sacrifice and the priest could sit down. Why? Why couldn't a high priest fulfill what God was doing in the sacrifices? What was the one essential reason why they couldn't do it? Because they were sinners. Right? A sinner can't offer an absolutely acceptable sacrifice for the sins of the people. Because he himself is a sinner, so he also must have a sacrifice for himself. So the priest would go into the temple and prepare. And what would he do? He first had to make sacrifices for his own sins. And then he was able to enter into the holy place and make sacrifice for the sins of the people. There was no chair. Hebrews 10.4, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. Isaiah 1.11, I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. So what was happening here? 
all of these sacrifices, all these years, beginning when? When was the first sacrifice made? Be careful. Be careful how you answer it. First of all, in what book of the Bible? Genesis. When is the first sacrifice made? Genesis. Genesis what? 3, verse 21. Adam and Eve had sinned, the hiding in the vegetable garden. And they clothed themselves with some fig leaves, correct? And the first, I know that typically in, in theological circles, they say the, the proto-evangelium, the first words of the gospel, you know, are that 315, that the Lord will send the seed of the woman. You remember that. But I think the first words of the gospel are, and I think it's verse 8. I could be wrong here. I think it's verse 8. You might look that up to make sure I'm right. If I'm wrong, just tell me. What are the first words of the gospel? What's the first thing that God does to this couple, therefore to all of us who have sinned? The first response of God is what? Where are you? Steve, I think those are the first words of the gospel. What does that say? Immediately, God comes searching for his people. Do you see that Adam and Eve are not searching for God? Do we see that? You see, there is a teaching and, and pretty pervasive teaching that we must search for God and we must ask Jesus to save us. And then when we ask him, he will come to us and save us. Is that the picture you have in Genesis chapter 3? Are they calling out from the bushes, God, save me. I'm a sinner. Jesus, help me. Is that what they're saying? No. It is God who always takes the initiative. And on what basis has he taken the initiative? On the basis of verse 21. And what does the Lord do? And he clothes them with the skins of an innocent sacrifice who represented them in its death. In an innocent sacrifice who represented them in his own death. This is an animal that is representing. This is a type of the one who will come, as John 1, 29 says, as the Lamb of God. And when you skin an animal, what happens? There is a shedding of blood. There's the shedding of blood. So you see, God has taken the initiative in Genesis 121. And then the next time we see a sacrifice being made is when? Genesis what? 4. And from that Genesis 321 or Genesis 4, all the way, all the way, millions of sacrifices, millions of animals, oceans of blood, all of it combined all of it combined was not able to forgive one single sin of even one person. All of it combined. What was it there for? It was to talk about or typify, it adumbrated, it represented what? The one sacrifice of the one Lamb of God, the Son of God as the Son of Man who would go to the cross and effectively pay what all these sacrifices could not do. And as a result of this, the Son of God, as the Son of Man, Jesus died, he was buried, he rose from the dead, 
And when he rises from the dead, he ascends into heaven. And when he is in heaven, he is commanded to do what? Sit down in the tabernacle, if you would, in the throne of God, in the very holy of holies, in the heavenly places, or as Hebrews calls it, into the holy place, into the holy place. All of the sacrifices pointed to one sacrifice. All of them did. Only the man of Psalm 110 was qualified personally and ministerially to take away sin through his sacrificial death. So listen to Hebrews 9, 11 to 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest, as a high priest, according to what? The order of Melchizedek. He entered heaven, verse 12, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Now, very quickly, I want to say something about Melchizedek, and then we'll, I don't want to go into any detail more than that. He says, you are priests forever according to order of Melchizedek. Do you remember Melchizedek, chapter 14 of Genesis? Abraham has gone to fight these kings, this combination of these kings who have taken his nephew Lot into captivity. Right? You remember the story? You may have seen the movie. And so Abraham gathers his own people. Now, we may think of Abraham and Sarah as an old couple walking through the desert, you know, all alone or whatever, and God says, leave this and go here. Abraham is a sheik. You know what that is? He's a chief. He has, and I don't remember the number, but over 300 men that he gathers. This This is a small kingdom going out into the desert. This is not just an old man and an old lady who don't have anybody with them and whatever. And he takes this army of his own workers and he does what? He goes in there and he defeats all the kings. And when he comes back from this, he is met by this strange man called Melchizedek. You see that in chapter 14 of Genesis. It's there for a reason. Now, in Hebrews 7.10, Melchizedek is described this way. He was the king of Salem. What does that mean? By translation, it means what? King of peace, king of righteousness. What city came out of the king of Salem? What city was this? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. This is the king who was the king of this area, which became years later the king of the city of the Jebusites, whom, which David conquered, and he, it became Jerusalem. He was the king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. El Elyon is the Hebrew. He's a priest of the Most High God. By translation of his name, verse 2, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. So do you see who is typified here? I don't believe this is a pre-incarnate, what do you call, theophany of appearance of Jesus, although, although some people do think that. It may be, it may not. But here is a man who is a special priest, unique among all the priests of his day, coming to meet Abraham. Look at verse 3. Without father and without mother. Does that mean he didn't have any mom in them? Without genealogy. It just said there was no tracing of his genealogy. There's no record of it. Having neither beginning of days nor end of life. And so you have this description of one who is a human, but he's representing someone who is more than a human. He's representing him who will come, who will, as to his earthliness, is a heavenly man. 
Melchizedek, you see, is of the heavens. He's a heavenly representative, where the priests on earth were earthly representatives. And so Melchizedek was a priest on the earth who typified God's priests from the heavens. And so he's, we're not given any details of him other than this. And so you remember, what did Abraham do? Abraham gave what to Melchizedek? Of all the spoils, what did he do? He gave what? 10%, a tithe. Why? Did the law prescribe a tithe? But you see, God had put something in Abraham's heart. And this is where we'll end today. He put something in Abraham's heart. And he says, I have come to bless you. Remember, I will bless you. I will make kings come from you. I will make great nations come from you. All your descendants will be like the sands, the sand on the earth. And Abraham's response, a relational response, is that he gave Melchizedek 10% of what he had gotten from this warfare. What is a tithe? A tithe isn't a legal obligation. It's a relational response to God out of appreciation and thanksgiving to him. God himself put in the heart of this man who is called the man of faith, Father Abraham, the representation, if you would, of all believers. Our father Abraham, remember? To give a tithe. Why? Because this was God's way of being honored, of being thanked. So this morning as we leave, this is not... Uh, a class today to try to get, get us to give more money, whatever. It has to do with how we respond, Abraham's response to Melchizedek, to God. Abraham's response to God, giving to Melchizedek a tithe of his income. Next week, we're going to talk about the relationship of our salvation and to four words. Here it is. I think it's on the bottom propitiation, expiation, reconciliation, and redemption. Each one of us should be able to understand and define at least what these four words mean. Each four, each of these four are very basic to the, what Jesus did at the cross. He was a propitiation for our sin. He expiated our sin. He is our reconciliation. And he is our what? What was the last word? What? Say it again. Hmm? What are the four words that have the bottom? Are they in the bottom? Oh, you don't have that. Okay. Propitiation, expiation, reconciliation, and redemption. So next week we'll talk about those four.